Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Day of Non-Judgment is Near. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 24, 2016. This presidential campaign will be remembered for many things but especially for the way it has degraded our public discourse and civic virtues in ways that seemed unimaginable not long ago. I'm thinking in particular of the way Donald Trump has vilified so many people with such vulgar language. The reading from Acts reminds us that God calls us to live and speak and act in radically different ways. The story of Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 11 begins with a tiny detail that Luke repeats three times. Luke writes that Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. A few sentences later, he repeats himself, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Peter who's staying with Simon the tanner. And then again, one page later, send a Joppa for Simon, who was called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner. Simon the Tanner was a socioeconomic outcast. He was a dirty man in both a literal and a figurative sense. Tanners worked with dead animals. The filth and the stench were awful. Imagine how Simon looked and smelled at the end of a hot day. He would have been the object of social disdain. Almost anyone would have felt superior to him. But Simon the Tanner had joined the Jesus movement. He found acceptance there that society never gave him. And so Simon the Tanner hosted Simon the Apostle. Given our human propensity for justifying ourselves and scapegoating others, the Jewish purity laws lent themselves to a moral hierarchy between the ritually clean, who considered themselves to be close to God, and the unclean, who were shunned as dirty sinners who were far from God. So, instead of expressing the holiness of God, Ritual purity became a means of excluding people who were considered polluted or contaminated. Jesus rejected purity, ritual purity, as a measure of spiritual status. In a marvelous stroke of irony, Luke says that it's in the home of Simon the Tanner, a Gentile who handled animal carcasses every day, where Peter the conscientious Jew had his vision of unclean animals. Peter learned that even though purity laws forbid him to associate with Gentiles, especially as one as dirty as Simon or as suspect as a Roman soldier like Cornelius, God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Peter's revelation reminds me of the remark by the German pastor Martin Niemöller 
who died in 1984. Niemöller protested Hitler's anti-Semite measures in person to the Fuhrer. For that, he was eventually arrested and then imprisoned for eight years at Sachsenhausen and Dachau. In words that paraphrase those of Peter, Niemöller once confessed, It took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He is not even the enemy of his enemies. In the movie Forgiving Dr. Mengele, Eva Kaur describes how she and her twin sister Miriam spent ten months in Auschwitz, where they were subjected to Mengele's horrific experiments. She returned to Auschwitz for the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the camps back in 1995. On that occasion, Eva Kaur did the unthinkable. She read aloud what she called her official declaration of amnesty to Mengele and to the Nazis. To be liberated from the Nazis was not enough, she said. She needed to be released from the pain of the past. To extend forgiveness without any prerequisites required of the perpetrators was what she called an act of self-healing. Of course, some Jews were outraged that she dared to do this. But for Kor, it was the feeling of complete freedom from pain through the act of forgiving your worst enemy. Disparaging others as unclean and impure, drawing boundaries between in and out, us and them, hating our enemies, all that is easy. But loving indiscriminately is hard. That was the lesson that Will Campbell learned. Will Campbell was born and raised in the rural and very poor south of Mississippi. He was ordained by family members at a local Baptist church when he was 17, and in a delightfully improbable life, played a central role as an activist on behalf of African Americans. In 1957, for example, Campbell was one of the four people who escorted the nine black students who integrated Little Rock Central High School. He was also the only white person to attend the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference by the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. The hate mail from the white right poured in. But as he matured, Campbell had a self-revelation similar to Peter's, that he hated those redneck bigots who hated blacks. Strange, he thought, how he enjoyed thinking that God hated all the same people that he hated. Campbell eventually came to realize that after 20 years in ministry, he had become little more than a doctrinaire social activist, which was something very different than being a follower of Jesus. The key, Campbell says, I came to understand the nature of tragedy and one who understands the nature of tragedy can never take sides. Campbell saw how he had played favorites and taken sides. 
He had subverted the indiscriminate love of God for all people without conditions, limits, or exceptions into a ministry of liberal sophistication. Acting upon these convictions, he started sipping whiskey with the Ku Klux Klan. He performed their weddings and funerals, and even befriended the Grand Dragon of North Carolina, J.R. Bob Jones. When they were sick, he emptied their bedpans. And then the hate mail came from the liberal left. Extending mercy to all and judgment to none has been central to the ministry of Pope Francis. Back on December 8, 2015, he announced the beginning of an extraordinary jubilee year of mercy, which will last through November 20th, 2016. And his new book has the title, The Name of God is Mercy. Francis became, began the year of mercy with a symbolic ritual, knocking on the massive bronze doors of the Basilica of St. Peter and then walking through them. Whereas the door is usually sealed, this jubilee year the Vatican expects about 10 million pilgrims to walk through that same door. The symbolic significance? I am the door, said Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 7. And so St. Francis prayed, You are the door through which we come to thee, inexhaustible source of consolation for everyone. To pass through the holy door, said St. Francis in his homily, means to rediscover the infinite mercy of the Father who welcomes everyone and goes out personally to encounter each of them. How much wrong we do to God and his grace when we affirm that sins are punished by his judgment before putting first that they are forgiven by his mercy. It is truly so, said Francis, paraphrasing James chapter 2, verse 13. We have to put mercy before judgment. And in every case, God's judgment will always be in the light of his mercy. And so, in his homily, Pope Francis put it this way. You cannot conceive of a true Christian who is not merciful just as you cannot conceive of God without his mercy. Mercy is the key word of the gospel. We should not be afraid. We should allow ourselves to be embraced by the mercy of God, who waits for us and who forgives everything. For books this week, I review a new title by Karen Armstrong. It's called St. Paul, The Apostle We Love to Hate. New York, New Harvest, 2015. This little book is 143 pages. This slender volume is just one title in a series called Icons by the New Harvest imprint of the publisher Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Other subjects in this series include Jesus, 
Alfred Hitchcock, Van Gogh, Edgar Allan Poe, the filmmaker David Lynch, Judy Garland, Hannah Arendt, and so on. These books aren't substitute for longer critical studies, but they're still a good way to get a reliable overview of important culture makers. The Apostle Paul, observes Karen Armstrong, was the first extant Christian author, writing about 20 years after the death of Jesus. He was also what she calls the only intellectual in the Jesus movement, a statement she can make, I guess, because she discounts Luke the physician as unreliable. In his own book, What Paul Meant, from 2006, the historian Gary Wills calls Paul a heroic traveler who logged more than 10,000 miles spreading the love of God in Christ. No one shaped the Jesus movement, what eventually became Christianity, and therefore all the West, as did Paul. And so it's entirely fitting for him to be included in this icon series. This is Armstrong's second book on Paul. In 1983, she published the book called The First Christian, and following the scholarly winds of the day, she says that she took it upon herself to show how much Paul had damaged Christianity and ruined the original message of Jesus. She loved to hate Paul back then and to show how much he was a misogynist, a supporter of slavery, a virulent authoritarian, and bitterly hostile to Jews and Judaism. But the scholarly winds have changed course in the last 30 years, and Armstrong now considers those early views as untenable. Today she loves Paul because, as Gary Wills put it, she believes that only later impersonators and interpolators turn Paul into a misogynist and anti-Semite. Undergirding her more recent interpretation of Paul are two critical presuppositions. That most everything that Luke writes about Paul is nonsense, exaggeration, poetic creation, in fiction, and second, that only seven of the epistles attributed to Paul are authentic. So, Armstrong now understands Paul as a radical egalitarian, seen best in the Galatians 3.28 and Colossians 3.11 baptismal confession, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul also battled the structural injustices of Roman society. He subverted imperial theology in favor of an ecclesia founded upon mutual love. In addition, he negotiated the com complex boundaries between his outreach to pagan Gentiles and fidelity to his Jewish background. In this regard, there were both continuities and discontinuities. Armstrong reminds us that we need to be careful about extrapolating from Paul's communities to our present-day issues. He wasn't writing to us, but to local communities about specific matters 2,000 years ago. But one thing we should take very seriously, she says in the very last sentence of her book, 
And that is Paul's insistence that a life in Christ is a life imbued with a love that is not a luxurious emotion in the heart, but must be expressed daily and practically in self-emptying concern for others. Once again, Karen Armstrong, St. Paul, the apostle we love to hate, from the year 2015. For movies this week, I review a documentary from the year 2013. It's called Finding Vivian Meyer. In the winter of 2007, the photographer John Maloof paid $380 at an auction for a suitcase full of photography negatives that he hoped to use for a book project about Chicago. That project never materialized because ever since then he's been unraveling the mystery of Vivian Meyer, who lived from 1926 to 2009. She was an unknown street photographer who took those pictures. Maloof eventually assembled a massive collection of Vivian Meyer's work, upwards of 150,000 negatives, home movies, audio tapes, and a trove of personal effects. The critical consensus is unanimous that Meyer is one of the most important photographers of her time, even though she never published, or in many cases even developed, her work. A prolific photographer, Meyer was also an eccentric recluse, a pathological pack rat, a woman of mystery, and a nanny for 40 years on the North Shore of Chicago. The film interviews the now adult children who were under Meyer's care, along with several, several photography critics. The best part of this movie is seeing Meyer's stunning photos. Today, her work has been featured in over 40 exhibitions and galleries all over the world. Maloof, who wrote and directed this film, now oversees the so-called Maloof Collection that claims to control 90% of Meyer's work, a website, books, and of course, this film. Finding Vivian Meyer was nominated for an Oscar as Best Documentary Feature Film. I watched this movie on Netflix streaming. In keeping with the theme that the day of non-judgment is near, we posted a poem this week called The Place Where We Are Right. It's by Yehudi Amachai who was an Israeli poet who lived from 1924 to 2000 and is considered by many both in, inter both in Israel and internationally as Israel's greatest modern poet. Yehudi Amachai, The Place Where We Are Right. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow. And a whisper will be heard in the place 
where the ruined house once stood. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 24th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.